0: In the heart of Kenya, amidst the untamed beauty of the African savanna, death is pretty common, but it happens among the animals, with tourists watching on. But in 1988, that changed. A young British woman, drawn to Kenya's breathtaking landscapes, hoped to capture the African wildlife through her camera's lens. The wildlife she loved would be blamed for her death. Was she eaten by a lion or hyena, or did a more ominous human force lurk in the shadows. Maybe someone she knew and trusted. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm Sandy, your host, and I'm glad you're listening. Today, we're destined for Kenya. It has the most diverse economy and the second largest population in East Africa. It's home to the Maasai Mara Reserve, which is where we're headed. When you think of safari, the Maasai Mara Reserve is probably the place you think of as it's been featured in many documentaries. Kenya also has a beautiful tropical coastline. A few nights on safari, followed by tropical drinks on a beach or camel rides along the coast sounds heavenly to me, and it did to Julie Ward, too. She was born on April 20, 1960, to parents John and Jan. She grew up as the oldest of three and the only daughter. We can safely assume she was the apple of her father's eye. She was known for her gentle, animal-loving nature and captivated everyone who crossed her path. Her brother Bob fondly reminisced about her having to regularly deal with the attention of admirers who were drawn to her beauty, intelligence, and sweetness. Julie tended to be a detailed person who took her time to make sure things were done perfectly. Following high school, she began work as a publishing assistant at Roland Photo Setting Limited, where she worked 12 hours a day. Maybe she got tired of the long hours, or maybe she worked that hard so she could fuel her travel desires. Either way, at the age of 28, she chose to take a break. She wanted to reflect on her life's priorities and dreams. Part of this decision was fueled by a deep passion for wildlife photography, and Kenya was where she wanted to be. This break wasn't a fly to Kenya, hop on a bus to a resort for a week and then fly home and tell your friends you went on a safari kind of trip. Her trip would last eight months. She'd travel over land and sea from Europe to Africa, taking her time along the way. She joined a group of 26 fellow travelers who traversed Spain, crossed the Mediterranean Sea to Morocco, and ventured across the African continent. The tour covered countries like Algeria, Mali, Ghana, the Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, and finished in Nairobi, Kenya. While most of the tour group returned to England from Nairobi, Julie couldn't bring herself to leave right away, so she postponed her departure date. She'd fallen in love with Kenya and she'd made friends in the area, expatriates Paul and Natasha Weld Dixon. They owned a huge piece of property on which they welcomed tourists to come and camp. She had set up camp there, and before long, she and the Dixons were good friends. In return for boarding, she took care of their pets and watched their house when the couple traveled. Julie had wanted to stay in Kenya through what she thought would be an amazing experience, the yearly wildebeest migration. This is one of the most spectacular wildlife events that takes place in East Africa. It's primarily in the Serengeti National Park in Tanzania and in the Maasai Mara Reserve. Which is where well near where Julie was. The annual migration wasn't just the wildebeests. Zebras and other herbivores all moved together, searching for greener pastures and water sources. It's most well known for its dramatic river crossings where large herds brave the crocodile infested rivers in their search for green grass. These crossings are perilous for the herbivores and a feast for the huge carnivorous crocs. While waiting for this experience, Julie spent time with her new friends and immersed herself in local experiences. Nairobi became her base, and she embarked on short trips to surrounding national parks, capturing thousands of animals on film. On the dusty roads of Kenya, she crossed paths with an Australian biologist named Dr. Glenn Burns, who couldn't resist the call of the wild either. They became friends just friends, by all accounts, and together they decided to take a five-and-a-half-hour journey west to the Masai Mara Reserve to watch the migration. They wouldn't be there long, though. Glenn had a presentation he had to make a few days later, and Julie had booked a return flight home. Before they left, Julie wrote a note to her friends and landlords, the Dixons. In it, she said she'd be back in a few days and that she'd miss their dogs and but that she looked forward to seeing them before she left for home. She also joked that if they flew over her in their small plane and saw her broken-down car, to give her a wave. She didn't know, as she wrote that note, that she had foreshadowed her future. The duo, Julie and Glenn, rolled into the wild expanse in Julie's Suzuki Jimny, a rugged, off-road beast, but one that wasn't always reliable. I'm no mechanic, but from my limited understanding, the vehicle is like a Jeep. It has four-wheel drive, but something had broken, and since parts were hard to come by and very expensive, they had to be shipped in from far away. A mechanic had told her that he could make the car drivable again, but that it would only have two-wheel drive. Julie was agreeable to this, and I guess biologist Glenn was too, because he rode with her. On the evening of Friday, September 2nd, they checked in at the Marai Massa Reserve and pitched camp at the Sand River Campground, a tiny dot on 580 square miles of untamed land. The next morning, they planned to drive around taking pictures and observing life, which they did until Julie's car broke down and left them stranded a good distance from the safety of their camp. They were in a bit of a panic. This was long before cell phones, and they didn't know when or how they'd get back to camp or get the vehicle fixed. Tempers were flaring. Luckily, their salvation wore the face of Steve Watson, a safari tour operator who happened to pass by. He told them he couldn't pick them up right away as he was in the midst of a safari tour, but he promised he'd come back for them later that day. That afternoon, dust-covered Savior Steve towed Julie's vehicle to the nearest lodge and called a local mechanic who told them that a cranky fuel pump needed replacement. They were stuck, and they didn't have much money. Luckily, Steve came to their rescue again. He lent them a spare tent, and the three of them forged a new friendship around a crackling campfire. That night, a plan was made. Glenn would make his way to Nairobi. He couldn't miss his presentation, but he would make sure he found the right parts and he'd have them sent as quickly as possible so the vehicle could be repaired. Julie would stay and keep photographing while she waited for the parts to come. On September 4th, Glenn flew to Nairobi, and soon a new fuel pump was sent to the lodge, but the wheels on the Suzuki wouldn't turn for a couple more days, as the repairs took time. Julie, unfazed by the weight, found solace in the company of Steve Watson. It seems that romance was in the air— as the couple spent a night together in the tent in the lodge. When the repaired Suzuki roared to life, Julie only had a couple days to spare before she had to leave. After returning Steve's tent and making promises to keep in touch with him, she would head back to Nairobi, but before leaving, she had to go back to her and Glenn's original campsite on the reserve to pick up her gear and to pay for the three days she had used the space. She did just that but then she was gone. From this point on, no one can say for sure what Julie's movements were. A clerk at the Sand River Gate showed that Julie signed out at 2.30 p.m., and he said he saw her drive off in the direction of Kikarok Lodge. The police constable on duty at the Mara Reserve confirmed the sighting and also stated that Julie was alone. However, another witness later said that Julie left with an armed man in military fatigues. What really happened to Julie after parting from Steve Watson remains a mystery. Back in Nairobi, the Dixons, who were anticipating Julie's return, found themselves worried. When a planned goodbye dinner for her on September 9th resulted in an empty chair, the wheels of anxiety began to turn. They called her family in England who hadn't heard from her. When Julie didn't fly home on the 10th, her father, John, sensed that something really bad had happened, and he wasted no time. He arrived in Kenya on September 12th and launched a very determined and expensive search. Six days after Julie vanished, five aircraft painted contrails across the African sky. They looked for any signs of her or the Suzuki. Meanwhile, her father drove up and down all the dusty roads and trails he could, looking for her. The next morning, near a river, a pilot spotted the Suzuki with an SOS plea written in sand on top of the vehicle. The car looked like it had been abandoned there, and there was no sign of Julie. The police were called, and they were the first ones to go anywhere near the car. No one else had. They removed some personal items from it, and they observed the SOS written on the roof. The items the police removed were a map, two bottles of beer, binoculars, and some other personal items. All the belongings were taken to the Sand River Police Post, where they would be kept as evidence. The spot where the vehicle was was strange. It was on a path off the main road, which led straight toward the river. The riverbank was steep and dangerous. They couldn't figure out why Julie would have even attempted to drive in this area and on this terrain especially in a vehicle that didn't have four-wheel drive anymore. Also, why would she write SOS on top of the vehicle and leave it behind? Had she gotten stuck? If it had broken down and she felt she had to go find help, why would she leave drinks and the map inside the vehicle? None of it made sense. On the same day that Julie's car was found, the chief game warden, Simon O'Le McCullough, came across a burnt-out fire pit in the Osteropia. I'm probably saying that wrong. Anything I pronounce wrong, I apologize for. This area is near another part of the Masai Mara Nature Zone. It's about 10 kilometers or 6 miles from Julie's abandoned vehicle. The chief game warden alerted police that he'd found human remains in a fire pit. John Ward quickly got word of this and rushed to the scene. Amidst the ashes of the fire pit lay a human leg, a fragment of human jaw, and a solitary lock of hair. Instinctively, John knew they belonged to Julie. He described the fire pit as black and oily. He wanted to go through the ashes to see what he could find. In the ashes lay a mug, sunglasses, and film cassettes, all burnt and melted. The scent emanating from the pit was of burnt flesh and gasoline. The police were called to the fire pit and tried to make sense of the scene. There was no blood anywhere around the pit. If she had been dismembered by man or animal, certainly there would be pools of dried blood on the ground. But no, there seemed to be nothing like that. The remains were sent for testing and were confirmed to belong to Julie. On September 15, 1988, police pathologist Dr. Adele Shaker declared Julie's death as unequivocally a murder. He reported that her leg had been severed with precision, indicating the use of an exceptionally sharp blade with clean incisions. Despite this forensic evidence, local police disagreed and told Julie's family that she must have been struck by lightning, followed by her body being torn apart and eaten by wild animals. The specific animals were unspecified, but lions, hyenas, or leopards were at the top of the list. I didn't think lightning strikes could cause people to combust, but I'm no expert, so I did some research, and I found out that while it's extremely rare, lightning can potentially cause clothing or objects on a person to catch fire. However, instances of people being directly set on fire by lightning are very uncommon. Most lightning-related injuries result from the electrical energy passing through the body, which leads to burns, neurological damage, and other serious health issues. When the British authorities read the Kenyan police report, they accepted it as factual, based on the information provided. In other words, they said, okie-dokie, sure, she was struck by lightning and then eaten. In a strange twist, only a week after the first pathologist, Dr. Adele Shaker, had concluded that she'd been murdered, another pathologist had a different opinion. The second pathologist said her injuries might have been caused by a crocodile. Strangely, the second doctor wrote the report that was released to the public. The chief government pathologist, Dr. Gason Cavite, had reworded the original version, replacing the term cleanly cut with torn, which aligned with the report that the theory was that Julie was attacked by animals. He also neglected to mention that the remains had been exposed to fire. Neither report had mentioned anything about the body parts being burned. This was an absolute tragedy for the Ward family, who grieved heavily for the loss of their daughter and sister. Meanwhile, the British media and Kenyan media couldn't get enough of Julie's story. They grabbed a hold of it and wrote headlines like, British tourist eaten by beasts. Julie's father, John, refused to believe that Julie was struck by lightning. He didn't believe it because, according to him, he knew there was a strong smell of gasoline at the fire pit. He argued that, according to the autopsy, Julie's leg was very cleanly cut, and we definitely know that lions and hyenas don't walk around with knives. So who cut up her leg? There were also absolutely no claw marks on Julie's body at all. So if she had been eaten by wild animals, they did a pretty good job of not sinking their claws or teeth into her. Approximately a month after the initial discovery of Julie's leg and jaw, Her skull was located a few meters away in the brush. John was feeling dumbfounded by this point. He couldn't understand why the initial autopsy report was changed. He had lost faith in the authorities, so he took it upon himself to have his daughter's leg shipped to England to have it looked at by a pathologist there. Two separate British pathologists agreed with the first report. They believed that Julie's leg had been cut with a sharp blade, like a machete, or a panga, as it's called in Africa. Then gasoline was poured onto it before it was lit on fire. Now John was ticked, and he resigned himself to the idea that he had to be the one to find justice for his daughter. Over the next several years, he made more than a hundred trips to Kenya and spent more than two million pounds on his efforts. In response to this, in time, the Kenyan police superintendent told John that it was possible that Julie took her own life, and then animals ate her remains. You heard that right. This man said out loud that he thought it was possible that Julie attempted to hack herself to death with a machete, and then when she didn't die from that, she miraculously came across a a can of gasoline out in the middle of nowhere, poured it on herself, and then set herself on fire. It sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth, and I can't imagine it sounded any better coming out of his. John contested the original pathology report, and he was successful. A coroner's inquest followed. The inquest was held in late 1989. According to the New York Times, a British diplomat, John Ferguson, testified that a junior police pathologist told him and Mr. Ward at the Nairobi City mortuary that he was certain that miss ward had been killed with a sharp instrument similar to a panga or type of machete her bones had been cleanly cut he said but when the pathologist report was made public the words sharp and cut had been changed by the pathologist superior to blunt and torn and cracked apparently to make it consistent with the wild animal theory Angered by the change report, Mr. Ward took his daughter's remains to a professor of pathology at Cambridge University, who testified to the court that Miss Ward was decapitated with a single blow delivered from behind with a sharp instrument. Dr. Ward said an analysis of ashes found with the remains showed that the fire had been set with gasoline. The magistrate had no choice but to conclude that Julia was murdered, but the judge didn't order a follow-up investigation. This infuriated John further. The authorities admitted that Julie had been murdered, but they didn't think it was necessary to find who killed her. John wondered if he'd ever get any help from the Kenyan police. He asked them, question after question, and his questions were met with silence. In time, John was able to get England involved. Scotland Yard detectives arrived in February of 1990 and brought fresh energy to the case and they ticked off the local authorities. Fast forward to 1992, these detectives pointed fingers at two guys, Peter Kepin and Jonah Magaroy. They were park rangers at the Masai Mara when Julie went missing. They were the only two rangers working that day in that part of the Mara where Julie was last seen. Some clues, like a battery from Julie's camera and a strand of her hair at the post gate, proved she was there. But what happened next? Well, the investigators figured out that Julie's name on the sign-out sheet at the Sand River Gate was falsified. So she'd been there, but she didn't sign herself out. Maybe that's where she was attacked. The two men were brought to trial, but once there, things went sideways because there simply wasn't enough proof. Her father wasn't surprised. He personally believed these guys had nothing to do with Julie's death. One thing that did come from the trial was the judge suggesting that investigators should take a harder look at the chief game warden, Simon Ole McCalla. He was the two men's boss, and his moves during the search for Julie seemed strange. He didn't aid in the search for her, and he never sent a single one of his 113 rangers out to help either. Other people searched, including a Swiss TV crew who were filming in the park. They offered the chief game warden their own radio-equipped vehicle, which would have helped with search efforts. But the chief wasn't having any of it. He basically told them to buzz off and to let John Ward's team of searchers handle it. Chief McCullough also showed up at Julie's vehicle after the police had come and gone. Yet, in court, he talked about stuff he saw in the car, like the map, the beer bottles, and binoculars, all of which were gone by the time he'd got there. Remember, they'd, be, they'd been taken by police for safekeeping? How would he have known about them? The judge thought McCullough had to have seen the crime scene before John or the police had been there. And there's more. Chief McCullough radioed in about finding human remains just 26 minutes after leaving Julie's vehicle to go look for her. He covered six miles of bush and trail, even having to detour around a sh- to, or two a shallow spot where he could cross a river. This didn't sit right with investigators. They took the shortest path from where the car was to the burnt-out campfire pit. They made it in 26 minutes, which happens to be the exact same time it took McCullough to get there. This proved to the investigators that McCullough knew exactly where Julie's remains were. When confronted about this, he said that he had seen vultures, which led him to the bodies. But the body was six miles away. There was absolutely no way he could have seen them from that far away. Something smelled fishy. He would eventually go to trial, and in what seems like déjà vu in 1999, he too was found not guilty due to lack of evidence. Many thought he was guilty, but the prosecution fell short. After the trial, he said, I was charged for a crime I know nothing about. John Ward also didn't buy that McCullough killed Julie, but he definitely felt that he was hiding something. John wasn't going to give up. In 2004, five years later, a British inquest ruled Julie's death an unlawful killing. No animals, no suicide. According to one witness... Chief Game Warden got a special call from President Daniel Arat-Moy right after they found Julie's remains. Within days, the Game Warden was no longer at the park. At first, staff said he was on vacation, but later they spilled the beans that he was suspended by his superiors. He never came back as Chief Warden. There were rumors that Julie was a spy and had got caught snapping pictures of militia camps in the Mara. Another story was that she accidentally saw some shady stuff, like drug smuggling, over the Tanzanian border, or maybe caught some illegal action on film when she was photographing the animals. It was all a possibility. But then there was an informant who claimed that Jonathan Moy, President Moy's eldest son, ordered Julie's murder after assaulting her. Kenyan authorities had had a chat with him in 1997 about these claims. He had denied it all, saying he was on his farm, not far from the Mara, and had no clue about Julie. The investigators were stumped at that point, but Jonathan's name would keep popping up. The case was going cold. Then, in March of 2009, former Superintendent Wan Zhao, the officer who once stated that Julie's death was a case of suicide, reached out to John Ward. He told John that he was ready to talk about the murder. John was stunned. This man had testified in court that his daughter had killed herself. If he knew it was murder, why didn't he say so? Wan Zhao confessed that he was forced to do so by his superiors. After spending a couple days in the Mara interviewing rangers and other park employees, he concluded that Jonathan Moy most likely killed Julie. When he informed his bosses back in Nairobi, they told him to look somewhere else. Zhao made another startling comment. He claimed that Chief Makala had nothing to do with Julie's murder, but that Jonathan Moy ordered him to dispose of her body. For John Ward, the pieces of the puzzle were coming together to form a bigger picture. In 2012, he wrote a very long article in a Nairobi Law monthly report. It was long and in-depth, and in it he laid out the case he had against Jonathan Moy. It was over 10,000 words. For context, this episode will run about 5,000. He pointed fingers at Jonathan Moy. Moy's lawyers denied it, saying he didn't know Julie. Let's, let's talk about Jonathan Moy. He wasn't just the Kenyan president's spawn, but a character in his own right. He stirred up more drama than a daytime soap opera. He was the oldest in a sprawling family of eight and carried the nickname J.T. He was far from a model son. He thrived on trouble and relished the role of a wealthy playboy who lived largely on his father's influence and fortune. His obsession was rally car driving, where he spared no expense, ensuring only the creme de la creme of racing equipment. Then he attempted to detour into politics. He threw his hat in the ring, but the polls were in his favor. Unfazed, he found another gig, playing advisor to his more successful brother, Gideon, who carved a niche in politics. However, skeptics suspected this was just a clever ruse to keep Jonathan on the family payroll. In the aftermath of Julie's demise, whispers circulated like wildfire about a clandestine affair between her and Jonathan. According to the grapevine, the president's heir crossed paths with Julie at the Rickshaw restaurant in Nairobi. There, a chance dinner fueled a whirlwind romance, at least in his imagination. It's, uh, allegedly, he invited her to his opulent abode in the Masai Mara, but trouble brewed when Julie didn't come alone. She had brought Glenn with her, and this had made Jonathan very angry. If this were true, Imagine how he'd have felt if he found out that she was spending time with another man, Savior Steve, just a few days later. Rumor had it that Jonathan saw an opportunity to take what he wanted when he saw Julie alone a few days later. An informant told this story directly to John, who wrote the following, I asked the man for identification and was shown the man's passport. Usually, informers are reluctant to produce proof of identity, always saying they fear reprisal from the government if they are identified. This informant was articulate and well-dressed. He had no restraint confirming his identity. The man said he used to work for Jonathan Moy and produced several photographs he took with Jonathan. He said that some of the photographs were taken at one of Jonathan Moy's houses in Lavington, Nairobi, Other photographs showed them alone and some with other men. A few were taken elsewhere. Clearly, the man knew Jonathan Moy well, and the photographs showed they were relaxed in each other's company. The informer started his story with the bland statement that Jonathan Moy was responsible for Julie's murder. He said that on September 6, 1988, Jonathan and his farm manager, together with two bodyguards and a driver, had left the farm. Jonathan's group used a short, wheel-based Land Rover on their way to another farm belonging to Jonathan. Their route took them through the Masai Mara. On September 6th, Julie had left the Serena Lodge and would have traveled on the same road they would have traveled on, because there was only one road. Her journey would have eventually taken her past the Kikorak Lodge and then on to the Sand River Gate. The informer said Julie was taking photographs, when Jonathan's vehicle stopped. At first, a joking conversation and banter took place. Then he said the banter turned nasty and the situation became aggressive. The informant said that Julie was raped by Jonathan Moy. At this point, there is a gap in the story, specifically as to what happened next and where Julie was taken. The informant's story continued that later in the day, Believing that Julie would report Jonathan's assault, he instructed his bodyguards to kill her. The informant provided the names of the bodyguards and their locations. He also provided the name of the driver and other witnesses to the rape, i.e., the farm manager. This man's name was Ibrahim Chog. According to the informant, Ibrahim had been a close friend and family member of J- Jonathan Moy he had found himself torn between loyalty and morality. Disturbed by the events, he attempted to intervene during the assault on Julie, but was not successful. He severed his ties with Jonathan Moy soon after, but before doing so, the informant had overheard a conversation between Jonathan and Ibrahim, where the latter vowed to expose Jonathan's actions to the world. A decade later, Ibrahim would die mysteriously, in what would be called a car accident. His father believed Ibrahim had paid the ultimate price for holding crucial knowledge about Julie's murder and had been beaten to death and that the car accident was merely a ploy to cover up the murder. John Ward's article also revealed what he had learned from an interview with a former Kenyan intelligence officer in 2004 who allegedly and anonymously disclosed witnessing Julie's rape and murder by three men. This account seamlessly aligned with the information provided by John's first informant. The man said that the trio with Julie were Moy's bodyguards and his driver, and that their instructions came from Jonathan. In 2018, seeking justice, John turned to the media, pleading with Kenyan authorities to obtain a DNA sample from his main suspect, Jonathan Moy. However, the pursuit yielded no tangible results. Jonathan Moy died in April 2019 due to pancreatic cancer. He vehemently denied his involvement until the end. Following the wake of his son's death, former President Daniel Arat Moy passed away in April of 2020. For 35 years, John Ward searched for justice, but it hasn't come. Sadly, he and his wife Jan died in 2023, within days of each other just short of their 90th birthdays, having never given up the battle to expose a cover-up that reached the highest levels. Their sons, Bob, 60, and Tim, 61, vowed to continue their parents' work. They say the Kenyan government and British government were both complicit in attempting to cover up Julie's murder. This isn't over. Tim added, The facts clearly suggest that Jonathan Moy killed Julie. We know that, but the authorities still refuse to admit it. Justice has yet to be served for Julie Ward, but that doesn't mean that it won't ever be. Now is the time for anyone who knows anything about this case to come forward. The Moys are no longer in control. Julie's family is hoping that someone is brave enough to come forward with facts about what happened or what they might have seen on the day Julie disappeared. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I will post pictures to go with it on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and of course on Patreon. There are links to all of those in the episode description. As always, it means the world to me when you give the podcast a five-star rating and a review. It doesn't need to be anything special. You can even just say hi. It truly helps the podcast grow and reach more people. I have a few special thank yous to give today. I'm going to start with a five-star review from Against Child Mutilation, who wrote, Love, I just discovered this podcast because of the collaboration among various podcasters. I can't believe it took so long to find you. Awesome podcast. Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank anybody who participated in the social media outreach and and commented or shared the podcast with a friend. That is how this podcast is growing. It's uh, just me, and your help is so essential. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks all, and to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.